Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, busy weekend, get up to anything? What does the election of Joe Biden mean for Britain? And if Trump won't concede, what will that mean for the healing phase of American democracy? Plus, the disunited kingdom. Polls in Scotland are showing a stronger appetite for independence than ever before. Is Britain really on the verge of breaking up? Scottish National Party MP for Stirling Alan Smith joins us to discuss the future of the union. And who would you lock down with? With England now well into its latest month of isolation, we asked the panel who they'd like to spend another prolonged period indoors with and why. All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker, now out on Tuesdays, so we can get to the weekend issues a little bit faster, and we picked a good weekend for it. Bunker dailies are now out on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, so why not make it easy on your phone and just subscribe? Let's meet this week's political task force. First up, welcome to the editor of LSE's COVID blog. You can follow it on Twitter, at LSE Public Policy. It's Ros Taylor. Hello, Ros. Hello. Big COVID news then. The vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech has turned out to be 90% effective, not just 60%, and they're applying for emergency approval to use it by the end of the month. How overexcited should we be? Is it all going to be over by Christmas? Uh, No, it's not all going to be over by Christmas, but it might well be over by late spring. That is uh, an, an optimistic take, but I don't think it's at all unrealistic. There will obviously be big problems ahead, uh, big obstacles to overcome, because not least the fact that the virus has to be kept at minus 80 degrees Celsius, apparently, which is quite a challenge. Uh, The vaccine has to be kept at that temperature. So that is something they will need to overcome. But generally, it's good news. And there are other vaccines as well in the pipeline. So the hope will be that if you can't get hold of one, then you'll be able to get hold of another. Are the Trumpers going to say that the Democrats sat on this until Biden won, he said with his conspiracy hat on? Yeah, of course they are. (laughs) (laughs) There was further good news at the weekend uh, with the government quietly U-turning on school meals after pressure from Marcus Rashford became irresistible. Are you surprised by this? Were they choosing a good weekend to bury bad news for them and good news for everybody else? Yeah, the challenge was to U-turn without seeming to U-turn. Um, but the downside of that is that people don't realise you've U-turned and still think you're being evil. So, you know, there's there's ups and downs to this kind of strategy. I think they should at least have been honest when they misjudged the public mood and not shuffled the announcement out. But I didn't really expect anything else, to be honest. There is apparently quite a lot of disquiet amongst Conservatives that if you're going to make a U10, you should at least get the capital from it. You should, as you were saying, you know, don't do it on the quiet. Is there anything left for the government to U-turn on, including perhaps a big one that we don't mention on this podcast? <laughs> Um, I'm afraid that that's wishful thinking on that one. <laughs> I, I mean, like, we, that that really is just too big to turn the tank round at this point. Um, there's plenty of things to U-turn on, though. I mean, there's there's mind there's stuff like the internal markets bill. I think that could still bite the dust in its current form. And we already have, you know, U-turns all the time. I mean, we had we've had a U-turn after that signal given to the press two weeks ago that self isolation would be cut to seven to ten days, and it hasn't happened. Why would you put out that and say that you're going to do it and give people the strong and correct impression that the virus is most contagious in the first seven to 10 days, so they probably needn't, needn't self-isolate for that long, and then not do it? But you still ensure that kids have to be off school for two weeks. What is going on here? Um, it's, it's very frustrating. It is very frustrating. Also joining us, we have escaped Labour spin doctor and Times Radio host, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. How are you doing? 
Hello, hello. So you were on the air for the announcement of the Biden victory. It must have been quite the experience. T- talk us through it. Did you have to scrap all your material about, uh, you know, local authority fencing directives and stuff? <laughs> Yeah, I was so we were doing a deep dive on that actually. So it was really mm. annoying. Now, what was so funny is that I just had no expectation that it was going to break on my show at all. And last week, the whole uh, English national lockdown got announced on my show, and that was all you know high drama. But we kind of saw it coming. And I had I having been glued to you know CNN for the whole week. You know, I was really hoping it would break on my show, but I had no expectations. And they film um, quite a lot of our show, so I didn't even bother like washing. In fact, I looked I looked like I just was in my gardening clothes when I came into the into the office. And even like my kind of assistant producer, just like you know, when somebody just looks you up and down, and I was like don't judge me like nothing's going to happen on air and we didn't even make any real contingency plans so the station had loads of people in because they thought friday was going to be the big day and kathy newman was hosting so they had like a whole team of exec producers and bookers and researchers and then nobody thought anything would happen on saturday and it happened right at the beginning of my show as i was interviewing a kind of rabid Republican who was screaming at me that COVID wasn't a problem and that there was loads of voter fraud. So I had to be like, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to have to cut you off right now because <laughs> Joe Biden has just won. And all I, and there was just a joy of hearing her ranting going, don't trust CNN, don't trust CNN, as we faded her out. It was like a glorious <laughs> moment. <laughs> what, like sort of like the, 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 the villains in the Phantom Zone in Superman spiralling off into the distance. Don't trust CNN. <laughs> Don't fade got... me down. Don't fade me down. <laughs> Have you managed to get CNN poisoning out of your system yet? Are you still seeing John King in your dreams? Oh, my God. I love John King so, so much. I mean, I just got to the stage where I'm sure, like, so many of our listeners and all of you, I was just carrying my laptop around, my surgically attached to my laptop, going to the loo, like, having a shower. It's like, I can't miss anything. I just can't miss anything. And, um, yeah, I got to the stage where I couldn't remember what time zone I was operating in. Like, I felt, you know, they were, like, uh, big big things coming in. Pacific time. I was like, am I in the Pacific now? Who, where am I? Like, who am I? Is there a god? Like, who's the prime minister? Yeah. I literally have no idea. I was so discombobulated. But yeah, I, I mean, it was just so intense, wasn't it? Take me out of Allegheny County. Today's special guest is Alan Smith. He's the SNP Member of Parliament for Stirling, a former MEP for Scotland, and a former guest on Romaniacs RIP, our now renamed podcast. Welcome to the bunker, Alan. How are you? Hi, Andrew. I'm doing all right, all things considered. Glad to hear it. Uh, what were you doing when the bunk- when the Biden victory was announced then? Uh, I was out and about. Uh, I was having some constituency meetings, and we've got uh, within my team we've got uh, a signal group where we we will chat about various things that are happening. And uh, Matt, one of my researchers, fired it through that that's it been announced. There was just a oh good, yeah, just a finally that a the last seventy two hours can can now reach some sort of conclusion, but also just the the last four years that there's yes. just been a low level static and the, everybody's background and hopefully we now start to see the end of it. So uh, I the, the start of some good news, hopefully. Uh, were you uh, actually talking to a constituent when this came through? Were you able to say, I, I'm, I have to stop you talking about road problems around here, but I've got a bit of good news for you. Oh, I love talking about road problems. <laughs> <laughs> We've got plenty of them happily, so that uh, that, that keeps keeps me busy. But, uh, no, it was uh, a message had come through on the phone, so I was uh, uh, somewhere where I could take that. I... It's been a while since we had you on Romaniacs. Uh, in the meantime, you swapped Brussels for Westminster. Which do you prefer? Which is, which, which is uh, the more congenial environment? And where do you think you're getting more done? Oh, 
Jings didn't realise you had a seven-hour podcast. That's, a, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. It, oh, it's been, 2019 was a, a, a big year and started with uh, Brexit was absolutely, totally going to happen and I was going to get my P45 along with all the other MEPs and then the election did happen. Uh, I was the lead candidate for the SNP and with the best ever election result the SNP's ever had in a European election, three of us out of six. Uh, then it became obvious that actually because of events elsewhere, the fight for keeping Scotland in the European Union was happening in the House of Commons where uh, I, 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 was, I was back to where I was when I first got into politics. I was shout, spending too much time shouting at the TV that you know, people who were <laughs> voting on things they patently didn't understand uh, from, on, on all sides of the discussion, I have to say. So hitting the idea with uh, my great mate Bruce Crawford, who's the member of the Scottish Parliament for Stirling, that uh, I was on a list over in Brussels. So if I stood in the election, which was then in in, in the works, uh, I could, if we won back Stirling from the Tories, they'd won it at the previous election, I'd be replaced in Brussels and then I could take my, my 16 years of European experience into the House of Commons. And it just shows how fast things have moved that uh, at that point, the prospect of a second EU referendum, uh, a minority Labour administration with our support, you know, all these things were possible. But then I won Stirling with 51% of the vote in December, but because of events elsewhere, Scotland voted massively for pro-Remain parties, pro-EU parties. But because of events elsewhere, Brexit was guaranteed. So we're still trying to make sense of that, sadly, a year later. So it's uh, I, I certainly feel I'm getting more domestic attention, put it that way, but uh, I have to say I think I'm doing a lot less useful work for the people that I serve, which is the people of Stirling, the people of Scotland, the people of the UK, the MEPs, those of us who were there to do a shift really did do a shift. Now, many, many, many MEPs from from some parties really weren't there to do a shift, but those of us who did really did do a lot. And the, the European Parliament set up to be productive in a way that Westminster's set up to be showbiz for ugly people. Firstly, whatever's happening on golf courses and in courts across America, it is the end of the Trump era. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will become the next president and vice president. It is a somber moment, a moment to reflect. So let's talk about that Giuliani press conference outside a Philadelphia landscaping firm next to a crematorium and a sex shop. Aisha, what the hell went on there? Was this the fitting end? Was this was this where the arc was always going to land, the final scene, the real concession speech? <sighs> I loved that so much. You know, those memes on social media, it's been like, it, it began like this, it ended like this. It was yes. so appropriate. I, I also felt that, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani, um, just that, that whole thing had big Bora energy. You know, I very mean, like so. it was very much so. And also it, a big question that's been in my mind is what has happened to Rudy Giuliani? Because he went from being a, you know, you know, a really well-respected politician, New York, 9-11, and you see him reduced to this absolutely preposterous um, figure just doing Trump's insane legal um, bidding for him now. So, you know, in a way, it was a it, it was a sort of, you know, comedic end to something. But, and we, you know, lots of laughing about it on social media, but, you know, a bit of like humour doesn't take away from the fact it's been a completely horrific awful scarring four years which didn't just pollute america but it's poisoned decency and politics you know across the whole world yeah it starts in a golden elevator ends in fantasy island adult shop but you know are we are we wrong to kind of laugh at this kind of ignominious end of trump because it's not the end of trumpism at all trumpism continues to go on and in fact the sort of the mockery and laughing up your sleeve at this is exactly the kind of grievance that powers trumpism yeah, no, absolutely. And 
I don't know, I've just been, everyone's been doing like a lot of soul searching about this. And it, I do find it really disturbing that 71 million people still voted for Trump. And we do have to try and kind of understand why. And we know we, you know, and it's no point us sort of judging from here. We've got exactly, you know, we've got very similar problems in this country, particularly in England. So, you know, I, I don't know. I just think liberals have got to be careful about how we celebrate this and I spoke to um, some people who are very close to Joe Biden and his team and they were saying to me that they were not going to strike a sort of jubilant note they were going to you know very much push, push this message about reaching out and look the left and liberals and which I will see I'm part of and I'm a comedian as well look we are brilliant at kind of you know laughing at the right wing and we do that very very well but we don't win power that often mm. Um, we have really great jokes, but we don't really have power. And I, look, we've all had a good laugh about it, but just kind of laughing at the at the right and laughing at populism and laughing at people who voted for Trump and laughing at Trump, you know, we, you've got to have a, a, a better sort of strategy. And that I think Joe Biden's team are quite aware of that. How dangerous a moment do you think this is? Because he's, he's got two months and a bit still as president. Described over the weekend by Mary Trump, or uh, his his niece, in a great interview in The Observer by Jude Rogers, a friend of the podcast, um, as having the, the biggest tantrum ever, that he's got nothing left but to break things. And amongst those things are American democracy, the mechanics of the state, and, 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 and faith in the idea of America. I mean, it, it, it has been described as the most dangerous moment, yes, for American democracy. I feel that his influence and power is is ebbing away and I don't think he's going to completely go away but the 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 position between now and the 20th of of January there isn't going to be so much that that he can that he can do I do think he's he's not ever going to concede um I think he'll probably set up some kind of media platform after he leaves so he's not going to disappear from American public life at all and I think he'll still push his ideology but what I think is going to be more interesting is you know how Joe Biden takes us all forward because he is in quite a difficult position yes he's won the electoral college he's won the popular vote the senate is still going to be really tough for him now there are some senate runoffs in January but even if the democrats win those and that is going to be hard they will only control the senate by a tiny tiny majority and the question is what is the republican party going to do now i think liberals are hoping that the Republican Party, the GOP, goes, oh, you know what, Trump's been really, really terrible. Let's all be really sort of moderate and work with Biden. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I think, you know, you look at a lot of senior uh, Republicans, they have they have said nothing. Some of them are, are backing Donald Trump's call, saying that this is um, has been a stolen election. I think it's I I don't think this nightmare is is over at all and I think if Joe Biden has 4 years as a president who cannot get a lot done although you know I think his team are quite savvy they're looking at executive orders and stuff you know there's a danger he could become a one term president as well so I don't think this nightmare is over by any stretch of the imagination Alan the uh, the Ayrshire Daily News went with the unimprovable headline, <laughs> South Ayrshire golf club owner loses 2020 presidential election. What does the new president mean for Scotland, do you think? 
Well, let's see. I mean, I, 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 there's been a couple of the Scottish acts have been asking me this. The Scottish journalists have, have been asking me this this sort of question as well. And I, I confess, my answer has to initially be able to look. I'm, I'm not sure it was about us. That's <laughs> <laughs> very modest. That, that's not going to that's not going to get any votes in Scotland, Alan. Yeah, well, it's not going to. You do yourself no favours. Tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's implications for the whole world in this, and and I'm really struck by by Aisha's point there about that the nightmare's not over. I mean that those of us on the left, and I, I count myself in that as well. Obviously, right? we do need to look at where that discontent, you know, that that howl of rage came from, and and it's climate change, it's automation, it's demographic changes, it's it's all sorts of stuff that's still in the mix and still very much there. You know, there, there's. A lot of people dismissing Trump as that was some sort of aberration. It's a, no, no, that vote happened for a reason. And unless we do some real hard thinking about what that reason was and the people who feel shut out of the democratic process, left behind, ignored, belittled, uh, the way people consume their information, you know, all, of, all of these issues are still rumbling around here as well, uh, in fact, in terms of what, what Biden means for Scotland, well, I think he's got a much better handle on uh, certainly Irish politics uh, than his predecessor uh, did. Uh, in terms of the Scottish discussion of that, well, we will be making our case, uh, and as, as, as I've said publicly, that we want to make sure that there's not going to be any surprises uh, within Scotland's next steps on independence or constitutional journey. Uh, so there's, there's a, a discussion to be had there, and I think that'll be more cordial politically with a Biden White House than it ever was with uh, President Trump. But the, the, the institutional personal links that we, that we all have with the states and the states has with Scotland, the UK, Ireland, you know, all of these things continue and are bigger than any one person. So I'd, I'd, I'd be wary of overstating what the change is going to be. The, the, the US is an important friend and ally to all of us, and that continues. Does the SNP have a relationship with the the Democrats? Do you, do you know do you have do you have those links that the kind of back channel links that uh, other sort of liberal parties across the world have? Oh, very much so. Uh, I, I was over in Washington in uh, January uh, just before, just 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 as this new thing called COVID was being reported on, yeah. and uh, we're we're back and forth on a regular basis in normal times. And yes, we've got close links with the Democrats. I have to say, we've got cordial links with the Republicans as well. And I think the big thing for the next couple of weeks, and we've seen some evidence of this from the states as well, is that if the moderate Republicans change their tone and emerge from this Trumpism. I, I, I think Trump was a different thing to the Republican Party and a, a different thing to, to politics. And, and if, if the moderate Republicans do make more bipartisan noises, I, I think there is there is scope for a healing. But uh, we're still we're still midway through midway through the early stages of this. Scotland always had a bit of a love hate relationship with him, didn't didn't you? Uh, the SNP as well. Nicola Sturgeon was very quick to congratulate Joe Biden this time, but back in the two thousands, the SNP was criticised for overruling a council in Aberdeenshire over the Turnberry Golf Course, which destroyed a site of special scientific interest that Trump was developing. He's just had another golf course uh, approved with the fake approval of Sean Connery. Apparently, he just <laughs> completely made it up. Was the SNP a little bit too close to Trump in the old days? Do you think? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, the the, the planning application north of Aberdeen, you know, the, the the golf course I understand is doing well. I mean, there there was the the site of special scientific interest, of course, but that's why we've got a planning process, and the planning process decided that the golf course was on balance the best development, and uh, that was a matter for the local authorities. And I I, I don't think any favours were done, uh, and Trump's uh, involvement to Sean Connery within that discussion was <laughs> it, it, it was utterly fictitious. You know, the idea that 
that was even how that could have happened. But no, I mean, certainly the, the Trump had a, a personal antipathy for Nicola Sturgeon because uh, she's, a, she's a strong woman in politics who speaks her mind and is very much an egalitarian. So uh, at variance to him. And uh, indeed, she, she and, and the rest of us have congratulated the, the incoming Biden administration. But uh, yeah, we're, we're all professionals. Yeah, we're, 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 We've got our interests. <laughs> they've got theirs. That's, that's, yeah. that's where we'll work. Roz, the, the British left has, uh, re- has reacted by claiming that Biden fell far short in the vote uh, and by not taking the Senate. They should have run a left candidate. What about Bernie and AOC? We hear a lot. Quite a lot of our favourite commentators got egg on their faces regarding the woefulness of Biden as a candidate. Is there, is there anything in their angle that Amer- America might be up for more enthusiastically left progressive politics? I think it's certainly up for a more radical left agenda that's focused on improving people's lives in tangible ways, essentially things like Obamacare, but also things like a path to US citizenship for dreamers, for example, and a big investment in renewables and green infrastructure, those kinds of things. The danger for the left here, I think, is that it goes down the path of identity politics, which there is some evidence has put people off, whether correctly or not, put people off Joe uh, Joe Biden, because then you are, you are basically policing people for infractions rather than focusing on the really salient issues, and you're forgetting about the people that you are really trying to help, and that's the danger. We've seen people like AOC, as you said, who of course couldn't have run this time, she was too young anyway, but pushing for a more radical agenda. But the question as well is whether you can get that through with what's at best, as Aisha was saying, a very slim Senate majority. So you do you aim really ambitiously and hardly get any of it, or do you aim in a moderate way and get a bit more of it? It's a it's a difficult balancing act. But as I say, I think the, the risks for the left are going down the road of identity politics at this moment. Keir Starmer lavished praise on Biden in The Guardian today, saying uh, for the United States of America and for Britain, this is the time to return to the world stage. Is it uh, revenge of the centrist dads then at last? Finally. <laughs> well, Starmer is <laughs> Starmer is still a very long way from power, and he he knows it. Uh, in that Guardian piece, basically, he was trying to be constructive and warning warning Boris Johnson how badly it will come across to a Biden administration if he undermines the Good Friday Agreement. That was his aim in that piece. Mm. It's been bad news for Boris Johnson, though, hasn't it? I mean, the weekend was pure joy. If you don't like Boris Johnson, You've got former Obama staffer describing him as a shape shifting creep saying they won't forget his slavish loyalty to Trump. The Sunday Times had a senior Democrat saying, if you think Joe hates him, wait till you'll hear what Kamala thinks. And number, to- number 10 has said that Johnson is not concerned if all the world leaders speak to Biden first. Uh, how far out in the cold is he? Well, there is a way that he can develop a modicum of credibility with Joe Biden, I think. And it lies precisely in the insult that they used, which is shapeshifter. Um, Johnson, unlike Trump, is perfectly capable of operating in an adult way diplomatically. He was always a liar, but he wasn't always a completely shameless populist as he is now. The difficulty for Johnson lies in his need to throw red meat to his populist base and also to be seen to entertain at all times. If his interactions with the Biden administration don't conflict with those urges, 
then I think he can achieve something and not embarrass us as a country. Not a lot necessarily, mm. but something. But all of our favourite kind of right-wing outriders, like the Douglas Murrays of the world, are pushing the idea that Biden is actually our enemy. Uh, that you know he hates the UK, and we've seen a lot of opinion pieces to that to that affecting places like the Mail. If um if a if a deal with the United States, a trade deal, is contingent on preserving the Good Friday Agreement, which it seems to be. Is this going to mean that Brexit trade talks with the EU, which have basically been on ice for weeks while we wait for a result in the American election, is it going to change the direction of them, do we think? Uh, the trade deal is not a priority for the US right now. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Joe Biden has enough to think about. I think he will want to wait and see how desperate we are come January or February as well before before getting involved in those negotiations. It is worth bearing in mind, though, that it will help Johnson that a trade deal with a Biden-led US is, in PR terms, it's likely to be seen as much less toxic than a trade deal with a Trump-led one regardless of how much chlorinated chicken you send over <laughs> in that deal, it is still an easier sell to the left and the right if it's to but uh, with Biden rather than with Trump. So as long as it's organic, liberal chlorinated chicken, we'll be okay with it. Okay, I get that right. <laughs> Aisha, just, just yeah. to wrap up, would it be a bit much to say that this, it, it's probably too much to say this is the end of populist authoritarians. Is it also too much to say it's the beginning of the end? Because we've seen a big one knocked off his perch, although he's refusing to say he's not on his perch. Very few of the others are teetering. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of like, I mean, look, of course, we that's what we hope. I mean, what? but so much of it is going to depend on, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Conservative Party uh, responds to, to a Biden win, because they have aped the Trump playbook in terms of Brexit and in terms of getting their huge win in uh, December. And it is going to be interesting to see if they sort of continue to be a kind of, you know, Poundland Trump and, and Steve Bannon outfit, or if they will moderate their um, political tone as well. I mean, certainly it's a huge shot in the arm for those who argue for moderate politics and decency in politics and, 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 and simple things like just trying to stick to facts and not creating alternative facts. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for that. But I think the message, which I think Joe Biden has been quite smart about emitting, is like, don't go crazy over this. You know, yes, it's a really important um, moment and it is great to see this horrendous, you know, person who glamorised corruption and misogyny and bullying and racism and, and nepotism and, and incompetence. It is great. It's a big moment to see this person lose their, their power. But it, it's not over as well. And to pick up what, you know, Alan said, you know, we're all in the wing of politics. We have, well, Alan isn't because he's been winning consistently. SNP are doing a very good, <laughs> good job in Scotland. But particularly in England, you know, we ha- we lose and lose and lose again. We have to resist the temptation, just punch the air and be like, haha, it's all over. I mean, I've seen ludicrous things saying, oh, Boris Johnson's going to, he's going to be over in the, you know, by the time we get to the new year, he's going to be gone. And, you know, there's going to be an amazing sort of Labour landslide. I mean, my God, that is yeah. so far from the truth. Um, and again, Scotland, a big part of that but you know I think we just have to be we have to be calm we have to be hopeful we have to learn the lessons from the 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 Biden thing we have to analyze everything everyone's got their own conjecture on on why um he won but let's hope it's a slight return to some kind of sanity and moderation in politics 
The Scottish independence referendum of 2014 was supposed to settle the matter for a generation. But first Brexit and then the new British government's intransigence and mishandling of COVID has put Scottish independence right back in the spotlight. The most recent poll in Scotland put support for independence at an all-time high with 54% in favour and the SNP is looking odds on for a majority in the Scottish elections in May again. The new factor, loathing of Boris Johnson, according to analysis by JL Partners, the firm led by Theresa May's former pollster James Johnson. Is Scottish independence an issue that the London government is going to have to face sooner rather than later? Our is is there more to this than just hatred of Boris Johnson, or is that the supercharging fuel? <laughs> well, Special Agent Johnson certainly isn't helping the case for the. <laughs> <United States. laughs> but it's really not about him. I mean, it, it, it's about way more significant uh, long-term macro stuff. Uh, the, the biggest change that we saw in Scottish politics in the past fifty years was the re-establishment of our national parliament in Edinburgh, and, and that's an old democracy after a mere two hundred and ninety-seven year absence re-established uh, within Scotland. We've got a proportional system which gives a different style of politics for every single level of Scottish elected office, local, uh, national, and when we had MEPs, the MEPs, we had a proportional system of government. Now that really does give a different style of politics. It's only Westminster that's stuck with first-past-the-post, which is much as I won Stirling with 51%, and I'm increasingly fond of the system, but it's a dreadful, (laughs) dreadful way to elect anybody because it means that a lot of people feel shut out and a lot of people don't feel part of the process, whereas we've got a different political culture. We've got a different sense of our place in the world, a different sense of ourselves because we've got two parliaments three parliaments before Brexit happened, where we're comfortable with multi-level decision-making, we're comfortable with multi-identities as well, frankly, in a way that the UK isn't, and Brexit was a reaction against that complicated world that we're all part of. So there's a a lot of big tides in in, in, in national psychology on this sort of stuff. And no, it's not about Boris Johnson. It's about the people of Scotland are the best people to make decisions about Scotland's future. Has your has the economic case for independence changed in the six years since since the last one? Because that was a huge, you know, beneath the personalities, beneath uh, the people who were campaigning in one direction or another. A large part of the decision was that the economic case seemed not to have been made. Has that changed? Obviously, the big thing being Brexit. Oh, very much so. And, and, and actually, what uh, what the twenty fourteen independence referendum did for an awful lot of people who weren't necessarily hostile to the the case for independence. Most Scots aren't hostile to it. Many are unpersuaded. But uh, what 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 uh, the twenty fourteen campaign did was shift a lot of people from could we do it to should we do it because we unpacked what the numbers actually were. And Scotland's economy is in decent shape. You know, we're, we're an open trading, modern economy. Access to the EU single market, access to the UK is, of course, important to us, but we're an export-driven economy. Uh, oil and gas was obviously part of that picture as well, and that's that's altered in the last six years. But we've got renewables in spades. We've got a healthy financial sector. We've got lots of good stuff going on. And Brexit, and this, this is where the, the case going forward will be very, very different our case for independence in Europe is now not what you have, you'll keep. It's what's just been taken away from you, you'll regain. So that's a very fundamentally different set of real-world advantages which are being removed against our will. We've played by all the rules of the UK constitution and we've been gubbed at every turn. Scotland has been disrespected massively since 2016. And what we're now going to put before the people of Scotland, and there will be bumps in the road as we get to that process, is here's how we'll exceed into the European Union again as a state from outside. And here's the advantages that we will regain on independence that we've now lost 
by virtue of votes elsewhere. So, so, so either there's a, there's a lot of things have changed since 2014. It won't be the same campaign. Is is that realistic though that you can rejoin the EU? Because there are a great many uh, EU states currently who have read it very strong reason not to reward separatism. Is it likely? Well, which is always put forward as you know, Spain's going to veto us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Every single Spanish foreign minister, and most of them are ex MEP colleagues of mine, uh, have been quite explicit. The official position of Madrid is: so long as this is an agreed constitutional process, we will take our line from London, which is our line as well. That we want an agreed constitutional process so that it's clear, so that it's absolutely binding. Everybody knows what the rules are. Spain doesn't recognise Montenegro. Negro, but it does, or rather, it doesn't recognise Kosovo, but it does recognise South Sudan. So Spain does not, does obviously have internal issues, as do a number of other countries, but the EU is, and this is the beauty of the, the fact that the SNP understands the European Union in a way that not many other UK parties do. The EU is a rules-based, treaty-led organisation where everything's written down. So we meet the criteria. Hopefully we won't have diverged from the, the acquis communautaire of the European Union by the point that we're looking to be rejoining. So there's a, a, a number of uh, advantages to us that were a bit complex before. We're not exceeding from within this time round. We're exceeding from out with the EU itself. So that's a much clearer constitutional legal route back in. And I've spare a thought for me. I've spent the last three, four years actually working on this stuff, making sure that all the doors across the European capitals are open to us. So we know exactly where the, the fault lines are. We know exactly what the issues are. And this will be an agreed constitutional process, agreed between Edinburgh and London, and the EU will take its line from that. But the government's policy to any future referendum is pretty adamant. Scottish Secretary Alastair Jack said the government will reject a new vote for a generation. What is your path to get to this vote? Because a large part of the agreement to the last one was that it was a single generational vote. How are you going to get it? Well, that was one line that Alex Salmon said in an interview once. The the Smith Commission, which was set up uh, in in order to reassess the the, the promises that were made to us in 2014, that we'll move to something as close to federalism as it's possible to be. And there was some increased devolution to the Holyrood Parliament under the Smith Commission proposals. But the Smith Commission, which every single party subsequently agreed to, was that there's nothing in that agreement that precludes a subsequent referendum. And Let's be real, things have changed since. A lot of the promises that were made to people who weren't hostile to independence but weren't persuaded in 2014 that we're a partnership of equals, we should lead the UK, not leave it, we're we're not going to get into the European Union, if you want to stick in the EU, you need to stick with the UK, economic stability, all of these promises look an awful lot more threadbare than they were in 2014. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that we'll be pushing is that, that there's been objectively big changes in the reality of how the devolution settlement works. And we've heard already the, the internal market bill. We are seeing on a daily basis, I'm up close and personal with it, that we're dealing with a UK government that is upending the constitutional settlement. We've, we've seen it reversed and turned on its head under the pretext of Brexit. But the Northern Ireland aspects of the internal market bill are pretty ropey, but I think they're easily cut out of it. The internal market bill turns on its head devolution for Wales and Scotland, which was endorsed by two referendums of the people of Scotland. So there's 
there's a number of things that the people of Scotland have been paying close attention to that have been glossed over as small, mere bagatelles by a UK government that talks the language of unionism, but doesn't actually pay, pay proper respect to the fact that the people of Scotland know what's best for Scotland. So Alistair Jack can say what he likes, but frankly, that's an utterly unsustainable position for him to, to, to have, and it, and it will change. Aisha, you're a, you're a pro-union Scot. Are you worried that momentum is with Scotland leaving the UK? Well, I'd like to clarify my identity on, Go on. The, uh, that in thing. So I, w- I was a very pro-union Scot and I um, worked on the uh, referendum campaign back in 2014 when I was uh, working for the for the Labour Party. I think I've definitely softened my position uh, emotionally. I think emotionally I was very much pro-union and there's still part of me that's, that feels that at a time when, you know, there's a lot of kind of nationalism being pursued, I feel it's a shame to divide and separate, particularly an island um, where we've had a very uh, strong union, where we are bound by lots of common things, including, you know, family and kinship and values and all of that kind of thing. So I definitely feel a, a kind of sense of of sadness about that. I'm instinctively somebody who wants to sort of unite rather than divide and separate. But where I think I, I've probably softened my position, and I think um, I think emotionally, I do understand, particularly now with the Boris Johnson government, particularly because of Brexit. I, um, you know, I used to get very cross with people who were like kind of supporting independence. I've definitely softened my position. I can absolutely understand the emotional attraction, and I know so many of my own friends and family who were staunch unionists who have now shifted their position. This is where Alan will probably disagree with me, but I'm just going from what I'm told from people. Boris Johnson is a big, the two B's, B's Brexit and Boris are, are, are quite a, you know, they're, they're sort of catnip um, to, 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 to the sort of idea of kind of independence. Where So I feel actually I'm more kind of, I understand the appeal of it. I don't know how it will work in real life. So the, the 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 argument I would apply is probably the similar argument that even someone like Alan would apply in terms of Brexit. I understand why people want to do this, and I'm not going to slag people off for want for, for feeling so frustrated about Westminster and and all that kind of thing. But a lot of it comes down to how is this actually going to work? Um, again, Alan will probably disagree with me, but I, I don't think Scotland's economy is absolutely roaring along at all right now because no economies are roaring along right now. And the the SNP Growth Commission author, you know, admitted and conceded that Scotland had the weakest economy in the developed world post-COVID. But of course, you know, all developed economies are suffering at the moment. If Scotland wants to join the EU, they will have to cut their um, deficit. That will mean some cuts in public spending, i.e. austerity. Scotland currently enjoys higher public spending um, you know, per head than other parts of the, the UK. There's lots of issues of you know, what the currency would be. And again, I suppose my anxiety, and these are questions that I think are legitimate questions, is the same critique is put on, on Brexit. Is separation from this union going to be the panacea to solve all these problems that people are rightly and legitimately frustrated about. You know, you look at, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do, I don't want to do like an Andrew Nigo, but things like the attainment gap in Scotland, you know, has, has, has not um, narrowed. Um, you know, the health service in Scotland is under the same um, pressures. I think my anxiety is sometimes we say that a sort of big 
radical, you know, tearing down all the institutions is going to provide the. I mean, that was that was what the argument was with with Brexit, and we know that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, what worries me as well: how is the border going to sort of operate? There will be a lot of logistical things. But having said all that, I do completely see that momentum is with the case for independence. You know, I feel it myself. And my, you look at the polls even my own friends and family up there, you absolutely kind of feel it. And I do feel that if there was a, a referendum now, I think there's no question that people would vote um, for independence. But another thing to note is in the data of the latest polls, when people are asked when they would like to, people want the referendum and they know how they want to vote, but people are nervous about having the referendum now. When, you, when people were asked when to have the referendum, a lot of people said now's not the time because of COVID and people don't know how Brexit's going to shake down. So they are important caveats to, to, to put in and note. Oh, sure. There, there's there's a lot there. And, and Aisha's on the same journey that a lot of SNP people have been on as well. I and mean, Back in the day, I volunteered for the Labour Party when I was a student uh, in Nottingham, I have to say, where there wasn't a huge independence movement. Though, you know, if, 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 <laughs> Nottingham, Nottingham wanting independence is quite yeah, a big deal, actually. <laughs> well, they, Freedom they, they, for the I think the yeah. Midlands could go for it if they, if they want. But uh, uh, those of us who came to the SNP and came to the idea of independence. One of the things which I think we weren't gentle enough with in 2014 on the yes side was the sense that people like Aisha, and I, I, and I hear this loud and clear, and it, this was where the, the EU referendum then gave me massive cause for reflection. I, I'm writing a book about the last few years and where I've been and, and that sort of stuff. And our proposition in 2014 was we'll all, we'll all remain within the EU, so you'll still be British, we'll still have the social union, you'll still have all the connections that we have. You know, none of that's actually going to change. And that belittled the sense of loss that a number of people were contemplating, that I don't want to choose between being British and Scottish, don't make me choose, uh, was, was something that I, th I think we could have been a lot more gentle with, because the EU referendum threw that into sharp relief for me, that my European identity was taken away from me against my will. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll be much more sensitive to that, uh, not least that Brexit's changed the, the, the case for the economics, but also the, the advantages, the practical advantages of being an EU citizen as opposed to a UK national. And all of these things will be worked through. And there are things to be worked out, of course. And, and I absolutely, to tell you a story, was, was berating uh, one of the, the UKIP MEPs, which tells you when it was, over in Strasbourg, <laughs> and saying, well, look, where's your proposition? Where's your white paper? In, in, in 2014, we put forward, uh, what was it, 300-odd pages of the white paper saying to the best of our ability, this is what it is. Here's the tyres you can kick and test it. And some people were persuaded, some people weren't. We will do that again for the next proposition. So the questions that are being raised are absolutely legitimate and we'll we'll have the answers. But the UKIP MEP said quite explicitly, and it stuck with me ever since, was, well, we learned from your experience, the more you said, the more you were held to account, which is where the Brexit mm -hmm. campaign was a series of airy promises quite deliberately. And, and I've, I've said long since that if, if you're proposing change, it behoves you to explain what that change is going to be and how it will actually make the lives of the people we all serve better. So we will do that again, and we're working on that at the moment. I'm the policy development convener of the SNP. Uh, we're putting together the manifesto for the Holyrood 21 elections, which are happening in May. That's going to be our political focus for the next wee while. And 
Parallel to that, we're keeping an eye on developments with the future UK-EU relationship because that's integral to our case for independence. And uh, all of these things are still in the mix. And we're not having an independence referendum tomorrow because things are moving, not least we're in the middle of a pandemic. So these are things that uh, are are yet to play out. But uh, the big dynamic and the big truth, to my mind, is that the people who know what's best for Scotland's future are the people who live in Scotland. Ros, the Conservative and Unionist Party keeps making noises and warning Scotland about leaving the UK and doing things that make Scotland want to leave the UK. Has the, have the Conservatives lost grip of this issue? Or have they simply psychologically at the back of their minds decided that Scotland is going and Ireland is going and they are now an English Nationalist Party? I don't think they've yet acknowledged that to themselves because it's too terrifying a prospect. But the way in which they have become the Conservatives a overwhelmingly English party is very striking. That didn't always used to be the case. I mean, there were there were prominent Scots in the Conservative Party, people like Malcolm Rifkin. And of course, during the, the Labour era, people used to complain that we were being ruled by Scots <laughs> because it was Gordon Brown, it was Robin Cook, it was Alistair Tony Blair, Darling, even Tony Taunty, Blair yeah. went to school in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it were, there were complaints that, you know, Scots were, were, were coming to Westminster and ruling there. And then, now, of course... That's all changed. And ambitious politicians who want to make a difference uh, in Scotland go to the Scottish Parliament and try and become MSPs. If you look at the handful of Conservative MPs in Scotland that the Tories have, they don't have high profiles at all. They're nearly all in the border uh, border areas. They, They don't get promoted in Westminster. And so there's almost, you know, there's, there's no interplay of ideas between the two. And it's just pulling, pulling more and more apart. Um, I think they're also relying on, on the um, assumption, the Conservatives, that a country that's just left the EU has no appetite for further constitutional upheaval. And I think in the case of Scotland, as Alan has been saying, they're wrong about mm. that. Finally, Aisha, I'm going to put this one on you. As someone who's on a journey... <laughs> Trying to what? see both sides. You're on a be... journey. You're taking, <laughs> literally taking the high road and the low road at the same time. <laughs> the third if, way. Absolutely, yeah. If it's on you, how would you keep the United Kingdom together? This is all taking place against the backdrop of the whole of the UK falling out with Westminster. It's not just, you know, it's not just Scotland. Manchester and Liverpool are ready to join Scotland in an independent republic. How would you keep the United Kingdom together? <laughs> Well, there's a simple. Well, there's a there's a very brutal kind of uh, pragmatic answer that by not by by using my 80 seat majority to just not give anybody a, a, a referendum is really simple. I mean, that's how you keep it together. That is the that and that is the that's the challenge the SNP may come up with against. Although there have been rumblings that what the Tories might do is is offer some kind of referendum thing on on terms that the SNP would not like. For example, giving everybody in the UK um, a say and, and all this kind of shenanigans, or trying to pre-negotiate some sort of deal and then having a, a referendum. There are rumours um, of all of that, but the the more emotional answer is um, it's really really difficult because the grievances that Scotland feels are not a unique to Scotland. I mean, just look at what Andy Burnham has been through yeah. in terms of Greater Manchester. You know, there are seats, particularly around sort of Cumbria, who are they're even more remote. They're more remote from Westminster than any other other point. But, you know, and, and by the way, when I was spending time in Scotland and you know, I was up in Orkney in the summer, you know, lots of Orcadians feel as remote from Edinburgh and Holyrood 
as they do from Westminster. So there's a lot of grumbling in some parts of Scotland that they feel very disconnected from um, Westminster. I mean, Shetland wants independence <laughs> from the whole lot of us, basically. I don't blame them. I, I I'm moving to Shetland, quite personally. So this thing of 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 disconnect, of feeling this distance, of feeling ignored um, from where power congregates, that is not unique to Scotland. And the, I think what there, there is a big argument across the entire of the United Kingdom from the southwest right up to, you know, Shetland, it, which is you, we have got to devolve more power uh, on every level. I mean, look at the COVID crisis. One of the reasons it's all been such a mess is because we have such an overly centralised health system you know as we forget you know the economy and infrastructure even just on health we wouldn't even let local authorities and local government do the testing when they had all the local intel and the know-how we're an incredibly centralized um, system so you know if i was in charge and i wanted to try and, and save things i would introduce a radical program of devolving real power including revenue raising powers you know scotland has health there is um questions over over other things i would do that but guess what i'm not in charge yet <laughs> yet she said <laughs> she laughed maniacally no, <laughs> joke 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 finally who would you lock down with? We're all stuck indoors. The mind wanders, especially when partners, kids, cats and dogs are driving one up the wall. So who would we rather be locked indoors for the duration of the isolation period with? Roz, who have you picked as your fantasy lockdown partners in crime? Well, obviously, the prime ones are Mads McKelson or John Stewart. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that they're not necessarily up for it. Um, Why would you pick them, Roz? You have to substantiate these choices. Well, you know, the, these are, the, well, why would I pick them? Do, do you need to answer that question, Andrew? Come on, come on, come on. Um, and also Lottie from Bake Off. I'm a big fan of Lottie and I'm gutted she's been voted out from Bake Off. And I, I would really like to isolate with her because she's just so sardonic. I, I, I love Lottie. But the big one that I would choose actually is 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 uh, nice and literary for you. So that's uh, Boccaccio. The um, right. Italian Italian medieval writer who wrote a really good book called The Decameron, which is all about some people who, during a play, go off and basically self-isolate in a luxury villa and tell each other's <laughs> story. It is the ideal thing for the play. Don't take any notice of people who say you should read Camus' The Plague or anything, because that's that's um, really a real downer. You should read this one instead, because it's basically people telling each other d- uh, dirty stories and funny stories. And so I reckon he is the ideal ideal lockdown companion he's the inventor of podcasting basically <laughs> it's the same thing <laughs> alan smith who would you like to spend the next few weeks with in a very small place i have been actually racking my brains on this one and i've gone for jim waterson who was uh, the, the author of oh, Carbon right. and hobbs because when, when when the world's getting too bleak and it's been been, been pretty bleak in times lately i've got the calvin and hobbs anthology and I, th- I think it, if we were going to create a new religion from scratch, I think the the sacred tomes of the Calvin and Hobbes anthology are probably a pretty decent place to start with the emphasis on the word decent. I think that would be an intelligent and fun company. Aisha, who are you who are you decamping with in your ISO cube? Um, the first is Nigella Lawson because I cannot cook for myself. Uh, like so, that is, uh, and the second one is I mean because I'm missing him so much. It's got to be John King from CNN. <laughs> <laughs> 
and his magic <laughs> wall, a, his magic wall. You'd be in an endless kind of timely with Nigella serving up, you know, buttered muffins and John King telling you what's going on in, you know, Poughkeepsie today. You'd, you'd lose your mind. Mind you, it is lockdown, I suppose. We're all going to lose our minds. The ones I'd choose, I would like to, if I'm going to be locked up in a small space, it's going to be with Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys because he's a fabulously erudite, entertaining fellow. And also he knows a lot about Russian history, so I think I might learn quite a lot. Christopher Hitchens, stimulating company, although you would have to kick him out the back door for smoking too much. And the the clincher is Jurgen Klopp because he would stop Neil and Christopher Hitchens from fighting. He would keep would ensure that they all it would ensure that we, we maintained a, a team spirit and a and a sense of positivity throughout this ordeal. And I, I think it would be great. Can you know imagine you know uh, Jurgen you know maintaining good humour in this tiny room while uh, Christopher Hitchens drinks all the booze and smokes all the fags. Yeah, you can have Neil Tennant <laughs> singing, what have I done to deserve this? <laughs> <laughs> or indeed losing my mind. Yeah, exactly. So we've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to quickly ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the books, films, television, and so forth that's keeping their minds clear as uh, stuff continues to pile in on us. Roz, what are you diverting yourself with this week? Well, the government won't let me swim anymore, not even in a pond. So I'm very upset about that. And I've been kind of trying to plod around more running in attempt to. But that's just, that's 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 kind of exercise. So it doesn't count. Mm. I've started watching um, Hugh Laurie in Roadkill. I oh, haven't yes. yet because my my uh, TV watching time is sadly limited. But it's uh, it, it, it's been quite impressive. Um, Hugh Laurie really makes it. And I, I've been really shocked by how much how much sex all these people have all the time. I mean, is it true, Aisha, that, you know, when you work in politics as a special advisor and stuff, that basically all you do is shag other special advisors? Roz, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> anyway, I'm very curious. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's great it, viewing, I recommend. Tremendous. Aisha, how about you? What's your diversion and escape route? Well, apart from John King, I've been, um, I watched and loved The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which was absolutely brilliant. It was really quirky and it was very stylish and smart. And the, the, the actress who played the lead was, was fantastic. And it um, really made me want to get a chess set, even though I'm really crap at games. I could barely play Guess Who, but um, Boggle is about as much as I can sort of do. But I expect and anticipate sales of chess sets to go through the roof during this lockdown as a result. It's of absolutely it. fantastic. It's, it's, it's everything that's great about Mad Men. Uh, without the sort of toxic masculinity, but with loads of chess. Alan Smith, how about you? What are you what's your uh, go-to? Uh, well, two things. Uh, Stuart MacDonald, my, my good pal at Westminster, recommended the Shard Lake Chronicles to me, C.J. Sampson, which is mm. uh, light reading, set in Tudor times, a series of kind of murder mystery sort of things. Think, think, think Midsummer Murders, but Tudor times in fancy dress, uh, which is uh, there's about eight of them to, to plow my way through. So that's been light relief. I've also got a Peloton bike uh, because my gym's been shut for the oh. last six months and I've finally uh, succumbed to that. So I'm doing spin classes uh, once a day at least, uh, which I can top up on New York style enthusiasm and get shouted at by Americans. Do you know what's going to happen in about, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but this is what would happen with me. Within six months, that would be the most expensive like clothes hanger, you know, when you've just done your washing. It it, well, it does. It, it does get the shirts lovely. So it does. <laughs> that helps as well. <laughs> Did you know that shares in Peloton fell, I think, 5% today on no. the news oh, of the vaccine? Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> I've got the bloody thing now. I'll need to use it. <laughs> 
Absolutely too late now. Get it, get it on eBay, sharpish. My escape route. I'm afraid I'm going to be true, true to type here. It's a comic book. I've got a new favourite comic book. It's called Decorum. It's by Jonathan Hickman and Mike Huddleston. It's about the the most well uh, brought up, cultivated, posh and sophisticated assassin in the universe. She travels uh, from planet to planet, uh, killing people for money while maintaining a mar- marvelously soignee comportment and uh, you know never a hair out of place. And she has. Uh, picks up on one of her jobs essentially a, a kind of an urchin a lost urchin on one of the numerous planets that she uh, that, that she has to work and we effectively have a kind of a pygmalion situation here except with giant alien monsters and lots of killing i recommend it enormously the artwork is absolutely incredible get to your local comic shop it's called decorum it is frankly it is the downton abbey of intergalactic assassination and i recommend it heartily to all listeners and that is the end of this week's bunker panel show thank you to our panel ross taylor thank you aisha hazarika thank you very much and special guest alan smith mp thanks for coming in good chat enjoyed it we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full-length show this time next week don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes you can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform patreon just say our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast if you back us you'll get a shout out on the show and here are some shout outs now Thanks and best wishes from me to Lizzie F, Mike Adams and Ben Daly. Hello and a massive thanks from me to Dorothy Jenkinson, Joseph Erber and James Patterson. And hello and thanks from me to Rachel Parks, L, just the letter L, and (laughs) Philip Dunkel. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika and Ros Taylor. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.